seen it and know how we're supposed to live our lives here on earth. God, we thank you for sending your son so that we may know you more personally. God, we thank you for this season. God, I pray that we would um, forever be thankful to you for sending your son down to earth and that we realize the importance of Christmas time. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ramsey. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, as we're going to be this morning and get all the way through, Lord willing, verse 26. I'm excited about this passage. This is a good passage for us. This is one that we need to hear um, because this is Paul through the Holy Spirit telling us what the local church is supposed to be and what the local church is not supposed to be. And far too often when we come to our our understanding of the local church, uh, we misunderstand what the church is and what the church isn't. And so we come up with all sorts of ideas on what the church is supposed to be. We'll come up with cliche sayings. We'll come up with all sorts of things to kind of define this idea of of church. But but far too often what we do is we'll kind of cling to the easiest phrase and not the most biblical idea. And so for me, this is important and this is personal, not just because I get to pastor this local body here, but because for me, the local church in my own life has been huge. I'm not here if it's not for the local church. And I've, I've shared my story a few times, but I want to just emphasize one, one point what the Lord's done for me because it's, it's vital for us. My, we, we did not go to church when I was growing up. We were, my, my mom and dad were good, moral people, I believe Christians. We just didn't go to church. Um, and so we bounced around at several places. We ended up in, in Panhandle, Texas, which is in the Panhandle and is the greatest small town in the Panhandle. And don't let anybody from Canadian tell you otherwise. And so we get to Panhandle, we're doing our thing, and then when I'm eight years old, my dad gets diagnosed with lung cancer. We had never, like he wasn't a smoker, he wasn't anything that would cause this lung cancer. It was just kind of something that, that showed up randomly, went to Houston, went all over the place, no answer. In fact, he's given six months to live. And so from that point on, we started attending church really regular. Uh, and, and it was that local body at First Baptist Panhandle that opened my family in a way that, that forever changed my life. Uh, my dad was an outdoor sports columnist for the Amarillo Globe News, so we did lots of hunting, lots of fishing, uh, lots of like t-ball games and baseball games and softball games and soccer and all of just the things you do, flag football, all of those things. But as soon as he got cancer, we end up in the church all the time, and the church took my family in in a way that I'll never forget. Uh, we were not a rich family. We could not tie the bunch. We had not attended beforehand. We just showed up. And I remember coming home, and there'd be food in our pantry. People would just stick cans of food in there. I'd come home, and there'd be people mowing our lawn for us. I'd come home, and there'd just be, like, people took care of us. And so uh, Dad lived for two years, passed away, and then after that, immediately, men from the church took me under their wing. I went hunting. I went fishing. Uh, To this day, I do not know how to clean a deer, because every time I've shot one, it's been with somebody from that church who's like, just go play, and I'll clean it for you. That's why I keep missing him at your house, Grant. Is this church, this local body of believers that so influenced me and so impacted me. But if you go and talk to other people about the church, oftentimes what you hear are not those kinds of stories. You hear stories of churches filled with people who are mean, people who don't care, uh, people who are judgmental, they're, they're religiously uptight, who have their nose sticking up in the air and won't look down. On any or that look down on anybody else and don't help. 
And so what I'm, I'm hoping the Lord will do this morning is help us to understand a biblical idea of what the local church is, what the local church isn't, and help us to understand that God is intimately involved in the local church. That it's not just some club and it's not just some gathering that we do. That we're the body with Christ as the head. And so to function properly, to function biblically, we have to understand our role. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 12 and go all the way through 26. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of the body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we are baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We were all given one spirit to drink. Indeed, the body is not one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not the hand, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not the eye, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. And if they were all the same, where would the body be? It is, as it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, to the head, you can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we clothe these, clothe these with the greatest, uh, greater honor. And our unrespectable parts are treated with greater respect, which our respectable parts do not need. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same concern for each other. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we thank you for today. God, I'm thankful that we can come to you today. That we can light the Advent candle of love and be reminded, God, that your, your coming, the first coming, God, was a coming of love and care and a coming to love us, to show grace and to love us, to show mercy and to love us first before we were lovable God and your second coming is a coming of love to love us and bring us to you completely and fully in glory God I'm grateful that we can baptize this morning and see that your word is going out and that there is life coming when your word is proclaimed God that our local body gains a member God I'm grateful that we come to this text and that you give us an illustration we can understand makes sense and that we can easily and practically put into place (coughs) God I pray that you would use this text in our hearts this morning encourage our hearts where we need encouragement convict our hearts where we need conviction and help us to grow in you and glorify Jesus and it's in your name we pray amen sorry I've got a cough (coughs) but I hid cough drops in here 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 again. For just as the body is one and many parts, <coughs> all the, uh, and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, 
so also is Christ. For we were baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were given one spirit to drink. Indeed, if the body is not one part but many, if the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not the eye, I don't belong to the body, it's not for that reason any less a part of the body. For if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? Let's pause there and look through what Paul is doing in this first half. Paul starts off and he tells us there's this body and he's talking about like a human body. So everybody good? All the parts. And he says all the parts are the body is one. There's one body, but not all of the body is made up of the exact same thing over and over and over again. It's one body with many parts and all of the parts are part of that body. So there's not parts of your body that are not part of the body. It's all together. There's unity within here, which is the issue that's taking place at Corinth. Now, what we would expect at the end of verse 12 is for Paul to say, and so also is the church. That's what we would expect Paul to connect the body to. That's what he's been talking about. That's who the letter's talking about. And as we'll see as we continue on, that's what Paul is getting at. The body represents the church. But instead, what Paul says is, so also is Christ. And we'll see that Christ closely associates himself with the body, with the church. And so we're baptized into one spirit, into one body. It doesn't matter our background. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter if you're a slave or free. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your income. It doesn't matter the type of car you drive. It doesn't matter your tax bracket. It doesn't matter what grades you get in your homework or on your grade sheet. It doesn't matter your career. All of those things are good and dandy and can be helpful, but that doesn't matter when it comes to salvation. What matters for salvation is that we're all baptized by one spirit, by one God, into the body. That there's unity there. Which means there's not different classes of Christians. There's not the super Christians who have it all together and then the Christians that are struggling and just barely making it and then the spectrum in between it. There's one group of believers, the saved, the redeemed. And from that one group, there's one body. So Paul is bringing this idea of a universal church, which just means the church is made up of all believers, past, present, and future, that will ever be saved. So those that are in heaven with the Lord now, those that are not even born, if God gives us that time, that will repent and become believers. That's the universal church, that we're one body. But God has also, in his wisdom, given us a local expression of this universal body. The local church. And so what Paul says is just because those things don't save us, it doesn't mean we discard them completely. Because the body is unified by the Holy Spirit, there's one body, but the body is not exactly the same. That there is diversity within this unity. That each person has a role to play, and no two people are exactly the same. (coughs) Which means no one is better than anyone else and no one is less than anyone else within the body of Christ and so the way that you come into the body in fact is by humbly repenting of your sins and turning to faith in Jesus Christ admitting that you're not enough to save yourself that you're not 
great enough to save yourself, that you are a natural sinner who is running from God as hard and as fast as you possibly can, and that naturally by your own power you can seek to set up your own kingdoms, but that's your own body, so to speak, and not the body that Christ has given us. And that body does what you want it to do to the best of its abilities. And the sad truth is for some people, some lost people, they will live that life, they will live that way, for the rest of their life, and what they will find out is they're trying to find hope, they're trying to find something that's going to fulfill them, and what they will learn throughout their life is there is nothing that will fulfill them if that's the life they want to live. Some people will never get what they want in life because they've set their lives up to be these broken bodies without Christ as the head. So they rebel against Christ, and they'll blame shift. They'll either beat themselves down thinking they're not good enough, or they'll elevate themselves up to the point where they think that they're not the problem, that it's always somebody else. And God has set within all human beings this desire to be something or to do something, to have a purpose, to have a hope. We all find different ways to seek after that purpose, to seek after that hope, to seek after those desires. However, without Christ, whatever we seek after is not ever going to be completely fulfilling. That we can chase after money, and we can chase after power, and we can chase after prestige, and we can chase after fame, and we can chase after family, we can chase after whatever it is that we think is going to fulfill us, that we think is going to give us a purpose, that we think is going to give us hope, and in the end, even if you get to where you achieve those things, what you find out is that they're empty, that it has no power to give you anything for your soul. So what we understand then is when we come to the gospel, or more importantly, when the gospel comes to us, is it saying you're not going to find that purpose in anything of this world. Instead, that motivation, that fulfilling, comes from Christ and Him crucified. That's the only way that we are filled, and we are only filled with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the good news. This is counterintuitive for the lost because it doesn't make sense to them. But for believers, we know this is true, not just because of our experience. We know this is true because this is what the scriptures tell us. Corinth had a problem. They had lots of problems. And they were showing themselves. They were not unified. They were saved. They were believers in Jesus Christ, but they had decided to make all of these factions within their church. They had their favorite teachers, and they would shame you if you didn't have the favorite teacher that they had. They, they uh, supported sexual immorality with the man in the church because he was a big-time tither. They ate meat offered to idols, knowing that it would hinder other people. They had head coverings and blurred gender roles that God had established for people. They had taken the Lord's Supper as an opportunity not to remind themselves of the gospel, but to remind the poor that they're poor and to remind the rich that they're rich. In fact, some people in the Lord's Supper were getting drunk off of it. They had a misunderstanding of spiritual gifts, thinking that certain gifts made you superior to other people, and if you didn't have those gifts, you were inferior. What Paul is saying is that's not the biblical church. That it's one body with many parts, many members, but one. 
That's what Paul is saying is you are saved by Jesus Christ, and when he saves you, you become a part of this body. You are part of the body. You are not the whole body. You fit into the whole body. The foot is a part of the body, even though it's not a hand. It's not less than the hand, it just is different. The ear is a part of the body, even though it's not an eye. It's not less than the eye, it's just different than the eye. That God has given you and me unique, what Paul talked about last time we gathered was spiritual gifts that work out in this body and that we have different experiences and different backgrounds and there's all sorts of diversity within us but when we come together god and his sovereignty has placed us together to fulfill this body that he is building in ira for his glory and that we are part of it and so paul makes a point that's kind of funny to imagine what kind of body would be filled with just eyeballs It'd be a weird one. Instead of ears, you have eyes. Instead of knees, you have eyes. You might be able to see what's happening, but you have no ability to do anything about it. He says the whole body, what if it's made out of ears instead of having some noses? You could hear what's going on, and the amount of earwax would be disgusting. But you'd not be able to do anything point that Paul is making is that anyone can join the body through salvation. Everyone who is saved is a part of the body of Christ. And so this universal body includes Christians throughout all of time. However, God set it up so this universal church manifests itself in local congregations, local bodies. So if you're a Christian, you need to belong to a church. And churches do this differently even in our area. Churches understand membership differently even in our areas. At our church, we value membership. We want to empower our members to make decisions and to serve, to be discipled and to share the gospel. And we focus on gospel centrality in all that we do. And we absolutely do not do this perfectly. We make mistakes. But that's the goal. That's the trajectory. Other churches do not do this the same exact way that we do this. And they don't have to do membership the same way that we do it. But at some point or in some way, you should belong to a local church. Because imagine if your hand left your body and just said, I don't have to be a part of the body anymore. I'm saved. I'm a believer. I follow after Jesus. But I'm a hand and I don't want to function within the local church. Suddenly, the body is weaker. And suddenly, a severed hand does no good to anyone. That limb is not healthy, and that body is not healthy. A body made up of all eyes or all ears is not a healthy body, just like a body that's missing parts is not a healthy body, just like discombobulated limbs or whatever parts that you might fit into the body not connected to one another is an unhealthy body that does no good for you and no good for the Lord either. We come to the body ready to be used by God as God would have us used. We are unique and unified. So you might be a hand or a foot or an ear or a nose, or an eye, or a leg, or an arm, or a spleen, or an intestine, or whatever it is that God has set for you to be. But you are that by God's grace and mercy. 
for a purpose and for a plan. We're not the same. We simply have the great big brother. We all have the same big brother, Jesus Christ, who dies for our sins, imputes to us his righteousness so that we might be a part of the body. So if you are part of the body, you are no less than anybody else and you are no more than any others. You are not the whole body in and of yourself, and you are needed and wanted within the church and within the body also. You are, by God's grace, growing in knowledge that we are not identical but unique because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and because of that uniqueness, we have to be unified, and we're only unified in the gospel of Jesus. That's what brings us together. Look at verse 18. But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. And if they were the same part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable would clothe these with greater honor. And our unrespectable parts we treat with greater respect, which our respectable parts do not need. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for one another. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. This is the heart of what Paul is getting at. God himself puts in places and arranges the body in the way that he sees fit or as he wills or as he chooses or as he pleases. And we agree with this for the physical body. Psalm 139, 13 through 16 says this, For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous. I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned, but before a single one of them began. We will use that Bible verse to say this is why abortion is a sin and we should not murder babies in the womb. And if God is sovereign over the creation of our physical bodies in the womb or before our days were even numbered, then certainly God is sovereign in our spiritual bodies in the local church as well. If he does this with our physical bodies, it will be no different than our spiritual bodies. That it is God who has all of these pieces and all of these places that are moving all around that brings us together in a way that doesn't make sense a lot of time. But then when we understand that we're the body with different roles, unified but unique, that we all fit together in this mesh of the gospel to glory and make much of Jesus, then all of a sudden we can see what the Lord might be doing with us. That you enter the body through the applied work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, and then God in his sovereignty places you where you need to be, where I need to be, with brothers and sisters in Christ. So we glorify God most when we recognize that God has given us each other for discipleship and sanctification. We're not the same, and this is never easy. We're all different parts, but members of the same body. And so the natural tendency is to think, well, certain members are more important than other members, right? Or as Farmhouse said, all pigs are equal, but some pigs are more equal than others. This happens all the time in our culture. 
certain careers are seen as more important than others, and so you adamantly <coughs> and urgently try to defend your career based upon whatever month it is. The belief is that you're only as valuable as you are if you can make money or shake young minds or, or contribute to society, however you want to find worth and value in those things. But at the end of the day, it's a discussion of worth and value, and that is manipulated and abused because we have a value system that does not match what the Bible values. We look at what Paul is saying. He's saying there's some parts that are more respectable or, or modest, comeliness, and others are less respectable or unpresentable, un- uncommonly parts, more, more honorable or dignifying or, or less lacking than other parts which are respectable. Paul is saying you have the freedom in Christ to recognize that not every body part is flashy, that not every body part you have does what the other body parts do, that there is a role within this. So for some body parts, there are some people who are shy. It makes no sense to me. But there are some body parts that God has given the body that do not want, nor should they have like the outgoingness that some of the other body parts would. In fact, what Paul is doing is he's saying, you think that the outer body parts are more important, like the, the hand or, or the face or the nose or the ears or the eyes. But what Paul says is the most important body parts are actually the body parts you cannot see. What good is an arm if the heart is absent? What good is a leg if you have no lungs? What Paul is saying is there's body parts that seem to receive more honor because they're more visible, like the hands. But in reality, what the hands should do is honor and, and build up the inside. In fact, God in his wisdom has given us a whole skeleton system that largely is meant to protect our innards, our hearts, our lungs, all the other stuff in here. I don't know. Because without those, the body isn't worth much. Paul is addressing a society in Corinth that largely looked down at other people if they didn't have certain gifts that they thought were more important than other gifts. If they didn't have what what they thought was more respectable or more visible gifts, then they put down and they dishonored the other people who had less respectable or less visible gifts. What Paul is saying to them is, you didn't come up with your gifts. If it's a spiritual gift, it's not an ability you have. It's not something that you worked on. It's something that was given to you by God for God's glory, for God's purposes. And then God placed you within this body for his glory and for your uh, good. That the body only functions together as much as the parts are working together. If the brain tells the hands to do something and hands don't do it, the body's not functioning properly. And so what kills the spiritual body, what kills the local churches, we see this repeatedly throughout the New Testament and repeatedly throughout the Scriptures, and we know it from practice, too, is the most dangerous sins for the local church are not the most obvious sins, but it's the little sins like jealousy, envy, gossip, and covetousness. Those encapsulate churches and will wound a body. And Paul applies it. Did you catch how he applied it at the end? So this means you rejoice with those who rejoice and you weep with those who weep. There's a story in in John chapter 11 that I always think about when we come to rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. 
and it's the story of Jesus and Lazarus. Lazarus, Mary and Martha's brother, kind of prominent in the New Testament for people who aren't disciples, uh, are, are said multiple times. So we see happening in John chapter 11 is Jesus off, is off doing some things, and he gets word that Lazarus is sick. And he's not just like sick, but he's sick, sick, like going to die sick if Jesus doesn't do something. And so Jesus, who loves Lazarus, who cares for Lazarus, who loves Mary, who loves Martha, and we know that from the scriptures, Jesus stays and he delays going to see Lazarus. So that by the time Jesus finally gets to Lazarus, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And we see Martha, Lazarus' sister, meet Jesus outside of the house. And she's saying, if you had come earlier, then Lazarus would be alive. He wouldn't have died. And Jesus tells her, I did this to show the glory of the Lord. And so they send to Mary, the other sister. And Mary comes out, and Mary says the same thing. If you had come earlier, then Lazarus would be alive. He wouldn't be dead and Jesus sees her and she's weeping and do you know what Jesus does John eleven thirty five, 35 the shortest verse in the Bible he Jesus wept why he knows exactly what he's going to do in the next chapter in the next verses he's going to resurrect Lazarus from the grave it's not going to be a party of weeping anymore why in the world would Jesus weep when he's the one who delayed coming because he associates with his people. He understands Mary and Martha's pain. He gets that they're hurting over the loss of their brother and that there's a struggle that's happening there, that their feelings and that their emotions are real and that they're true. That we worship a God who is not distant. We worship a God who cares intimately about us, who loves you and who loves me and relates to you and relates to me. We worship and serve a great high priest who has been tempted like we are tempted and understands the trials and the struggles of being a human being. And so he weeps with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. Those verses, I think, are some of the hardest to apply in the New Testament if we take them biblically. Because what that means, then, is you look at your brothers and sisters in Christ and you be happy for them when you don't want to be. And you weep with them when they might be weeping over things that you think they shouldn't be weeping about. I've seen this happen multiple times where it's hard. Maybe you're struggling with infertility and you cannot get pregnant and you look at other couples that just seem to look at each other and all of a sudden, boom, there's 12 kids in a minivan. And then you get frustrated because they just complain about how tired and worn out they are from the burden of kids when that's all you want. Yet scripture tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Someone loses their parent your parents were kind of cold and mean to you and so you're like I just don't understand why you're weeping over the loss of a parent this makes no sense it can be hard this is the biblical call to love see I love 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians is a fun book in 1 Corinthians 13 is the marriage passage you know what I'm talking about love is patient love is kind love does not envy does not. that's not about a marriage it's about a local church 
Paul is saying that for the local church. We'll get there. I'm not going to get off too far on it, but that's the definition of love that Paul is giving to us. And so what he is saying is God knows your hearts. God knows your thoughts. God knows you. And God, in his sovereignty and in his perfection, put you with other brothers and sisters in Christ, not because it's going to be easy, but because it will help to sanctify you that they will help to reveal sins in your heart, and you will get to help reveal sins in their heart, and you can repent of those sins and grow in discipleship and in sanctification in Jesus Christ. It's not an accident that you're here. Your role in the church is not an accident. That we are unified, but we are different than one another. And we see that the gospel is magnified because of this. Jesus closely identifies with his church. It is not some secondary thing with just kind of stick to the side and we do or we become a part of if life allows us to be. It's something that should take the priority. In Acts chapter 9, we see this man named Saul who was not a good man, a murderer who supported murders is going off to Damascus to go murder some more Christians, to go imprison some more Christians. Yet Jesus encounters Saul on the road to Damascus, covers him in his deal, blinds him, and then speaks to Saul. And listen to what he says. Falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul never persecuted Jesus. Yet Jesus so closely identifies with this church, he doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He's saying, Saul, Saul, you in coming after the church are actually persecuting Jesus Christ, or you're persecuting me. In Revelation chapter 1, one of the things we miss about Revelation is it's written to seven churches. That there's all of these different churches. Some have, are far away from the source. They're, they're lukewarm, and others have, have lost their first love. But what we see John doing is Jesus gives John this vision he gives them these lampstands, and amongst the lampstands, we see the Son of Man walking amongst the lampstands before all of like the, the other stuff with Revelation that we get confused about comes in. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see whose voice it was who spoke to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. Jesus interprets this vision for us. And he tells us that the lampstands are the churches. And so what we see, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, wrapped up in the glory of God. And if you keep reading, Jesus is described as the Ancient of Days is described in Daniel as God Almighty, God in the flesh, the sovereign God who breathed out life and breathed out creation, so associates with his churches that we find Jesus in the midst of the golden lampstands. This is after he's died and after he's been resurrected. That he is associating and that he is relating with his local church. That he is the head and that we are the body. And that we are given each other not by accident, not by fluke, not because we just so happen to be here. That it's in God's sovereignty that we have one another. We could be anywhere. I may or may not have prayed to have been a pastor of a church next to a fly fishing stream. But in God's sovereignty, I was not, and that's probably a good thing. But he's given us each other so that together we can accomplish the task of glorifying God here in Ira to the best of our ability. That Jesus is our Savior. The church doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. 
And he saves us not by any works that you and I can do. And he saves us not because we have it all together and not because he needs us and not because we're great and not because we're awesome and not because we're handsome and not because we're smart and not because we're athletic and not because we're funny and not because we have life all together and he needs us. No, Jesus saves us because it glorifies him when he saves us. And when he saves us, he gives us brothers and sisters. I have three kids and a brother. Here's what I know. Siblings fight. I've <laughs> only punched one person in my life. It's my brother. I think that is important that we remember. That God has, I've watched my kids all the time, and they fight with each other. It feels like nonstop. But then I also look at them and know that they would fight for each other just as hard as they would fight each other. They're brothers and sisters, biologically. But if the Bible is telling us, if, if Paul is telling us, if the Spirit's telling us, if Jesus is telling us that we're one body, that we're this one family, where we're brothers and sisters, then that means we are going to fight sometimes, and it's okay. We're going to disagree sometimes, it's okay. We're going to annoy each other sometimes, it's okay. I promise, when you get to annoy me, I am super annoying. <laughs> Tonight's deacon's meeting just got interesting. <laughs> that there are those extra grace required people. But it's not an accident that you're with them. That if someone sins against you within the church, if God's telling you, go talk to them. Go help them grow in Jesus. Go sanctify them. You don't have to be a jerk about it. You sinned against me. Repent. Or if you sin against somebody else within the church. Lord Paul, we're not going to be perfect. We're not going to be perfect on this side of heaven. Instead, we have to be humble and understand that our salvation is not earned but given. It's the most basic part of, of a spiritual gift. Whatever spiritual gift you have, the most basic part of it is your presence. Being here. You're not the body alone. You are part of the body. And you are the part of the body that God has assigned for you to be, which means nobody is more valuable than anybody else, and it means nobody is worthless in the church. We can take joy and comfort in knowing you are not everything and you are not nothing. You are needed here, and that you need the church because what good is an ear with no body? What good is a heart with no body? What good is a body with only eyes? What good is a body with only hands? Now the best way to find your place, the best way to find out who is, we can take a spiritual gifts test, and you can do that if you want to. I just don't think it's the best way to find out where to plug in. At best, those are black and white, and they'll tell you kind of your abilities, kind of your desires. The best way to plug in is trial and error. If you plug in somewhere you're not supposed to be serving, it will be painfully aware to you very quickly. And if you plug in somewhere where you never thought you would serve, but you absolutely love it, it will be painfully aware to you then too. Rest in Jesus. Know that life is more than going through the emotions know that in the end Jesus relates so closely to his bride, his church, that what we do is important. It matters. This 
isn't just coming and sitting in the pews and sitting in the heater or the air conditioner be better than everybody else. This is us coming together saying our only hope is Jesus Christ. And we recognize in the scriptures that we fulfill the Great Commission more together than we do individually. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you that we can be here. That we can grow in you. God, I thank you for our church. What a joy it is to pastor here. God, I pray that you would encourage our hearts with these passages. Help us to not be overcommitted and not be undercommitted. God, help us to understand the importance and the value of, of your church. God, we're yours. Help us to make much of you. God, as we turn to worship, I pray that you'd help us to sing songs that glorify you, sing songs from the heart. It's in Jesus' name we pray.